Good morning. My name is Bryce Hales. Uh, I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. It's great to um, great to see you this morning. Um, I also wanted to say thank you and, and just introduce Michael Bottomley, a good friend of mine who's uh, playing guitar this morning and uh, and leading our band. Um, you know, every once in a while we give Jason uh, the week off. Just ever every once in a while and. Um, uh, so, Michael, thank you for, for being here to, to help lead our church in worship. We appreciate you. Um, if you have a Bible, I'm going to inter- uh, invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 1. And um, I'm going to read that in a few minutes. Mark chapter 1, if you're looking on one of, in one of the blue church Bibles, you can find Mark 1 on page 836. I heard a story uh, this week about a uh, father who was in the shower, and um, while he's in the shower, his two-year-old son kind of wanders into the bathroom and um, starts pulling at the toilet paper roll. And before long, as you know, parents of young children know what happens here, the bathroom is a mess, and uh, the two-year-old little boy is, is kind of wrapped up like a mummy in, um, in the toilet paper, and dad kind of sees what's going on, jumps out of the shower, grabs his phone to snap a picture of, of, of his kid um, just in this kind of precious moment. And um, it's such a great picture when it comes out that a couple weeks later, it's um, Christmas season and family's putting the Christmas cards together and they, they end up including that, that picture of the little boy wrapped up in the toilet paper um, in, uh, in their Christmas card. Everything's going great until about 10, 10 days later, um, dad gets a phone call from a, uh, a friend of his who is just kind of beside himself laughing so hard he can hardly get the words out. And he says, please, please, please tell me that you just sent that picture in, in my Christmas card that you didn't send that out to everybody. Dad says, no, 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 no. I, um, that, that went out to you know 150 friends and relatives or so, and uh, you see where this is going. Um, friend says, I want you to go back and take a little bit closer look at that picture, uh, because you've not only captured this precious moment of, uh, of your son looking cute, but you've also caught the reflection of his father in the mirror, wearing nothing but his camera, <laughs> and sent it out to all of your friends, relatives. Sometimes it's a good idea to take a little bit closer look. And that's what we're going to do over the next several weeks. This morning we are beginning a new series. We're going to, over the summer and kind of ending in September, we're going to spend 16 weeks working our way through the Gospel of Mark, the Book of Mark. Um, And um, what, what I want us to do in this series is take a closer look at the real Jesus. Um... Take a closer look at, uh, at the real Jesus. Who is Jesus? Most of us, I think, um, believe that we know the answer to that question. Uh, whether you've grown up in the church or not, um, you probably have an opinion of who Jesus is. He's a good teacher. He's, a, he's the Savior. He was a good example. He uh, was a man who lived a long time ago. Um, 
He never offended anyone. For some reason, people killed him. Um, our opinion about who Jesus is tends to be confirmed whenever we look at the Bible. Our, seri- uh, our, our family has discovered this uh, TV show on Netflix called Brain Games, and it's basically every episode is a, is a, it's this National Geographic show that kind of shows us the way that our brains trick us into believing that things are different than they actually are. And so there's one series, or there's one episode where they over and over again ask crowds of people to read a statement and we've all done this have you ever sent an email where before you send out the email you say to somebody hey would you proofread this and they find all kinds of typos in the uh, in the in your email that you're about to send out and you're thinking to yourself gosh i've read this three or four times how did i not catch these mistakes how did i not um can I, can, you know i left out words um why does that happen and because we tend to see what we expect to see and so it is with jesus And so I want to invite you to take a closer look. The Gospel of Mark is believed by most scholars uh, to be the earliest of the four Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Mark was the first one of those written. It's the shortest of the four Gospels. It's an action-packed account of the life of Jesus. It was written by Mark. Um, or John Mark, who was the cousin of Barnabas. Uh, we read their story a little bit in the book of, in the book of Acts. Um, but we believe that the book of Mark, uh, Mark wasn't himself an eyewitness of the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. And so we believe that Mark is actually telling, um, kind of get, relating the eyewitness testimony of the apostle Peter. Um, it's the eyewitness account of the events. And yet it's not just like a straight biography. In, in this sense, um, Mark is not simply trying to tell us the events of Jesus' life in the order that they happened. Um, you might say he's writing with a bias. He's writing with a goal. He's writing to try to get us to do something, to respond. He has a specific purpose in mind. And it's really clear in the way that Mark writes about Jesus that he wants us to know two things about who Jesus is. He wants us to read the story of the life of Jesus and come away with the conclusion that Jesus is both Lord and Savior. That Jesus is both uh, the King, but he is also the one who sacrifices himself. Jesus is both a man and God. And there's two reasons why uh, this is important. And the first reason is this, that in the last, let's say, I don't know, 150 years, um, since kind of the beginning of the 20th century, um, academic scholars, uh, let's say early 1900s, there began this movement in academia to discredit the Bible. And of course, there's always been people wanting to discredit the Bible, but especially beginning in the, in the, um, in the early 20th century, late 19th century, um, and the view, you know, the, the assumption was that we can't really know who the actual Jesus of history was. Um, the, the view was that the stories of Jesus in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they began as myths or uh, legends or stories that were told and passed down from generation to generation for hundreds of years before anybody actually wrote them down. And so what we have in the Bible is just a collection of of fairy tales. 
And uh, in the last 100 years, scholarship has demonstrated that that view is largely false, that actually we have very, very good reason to believe that the book of Mark, one of the earliest uh, written, um, that, that it was written in the 50s or 60s, uh, 20 or 30 years after the death of Jesus, when the, the, um, many of the eyewitnesses to the events in the gospel of Mark were still living and could confirm them or deny them. And so it's important for us to see, um, to see what Mark has to say to us because this is reliable eyewitness testimony. And whether you're in a uh, freshman kind of intro to religion class in college or you're having coffee with a friend at a local, local coffee shop, even though it's been kind of largely discredited, there's still this kind of pseudo-popular view that... Um, that we can't really know who Jesus actually is and that the Bible's full of contradictions. And what I think you're going to see if we take another look at the, at the real Jesus in the book of Mark is that this is actually very reliable eyewitness testimony that is going to lead us to the view that Jesus is both Lord and Savior. But there's a second reason, and then I'm actually going to read the text if you're wondering. I know my wife is probably panicking. <laughs> Second reason it's important to take a closer look here is this, that um, especially if you call yourself a Christian or if you've been in the church for any length of time, um, there's an important question to ask, and it's this, why did Jesus live? Like, why did Jesus actually live a life? Um, we're familiar with the, the Christmas story, right? The birth of Jesus. And we know about the cross, and we know about the resurrection of Jesus, and it, it seems like, you know, we can kind of understand why those are important events. But what, is it important, like, what happened between the birth and the, the death of Jesus? Or if we knew nothing of that time period, would it make any difference in our lives, in the way that we live as Christians? Mark wants us to see that the real Jesus is both Lord and Savior. And for many Christians today, I believe that we are much more comfortable with Jesus being our Savior than we are with him being our Lord. What I mean is this. We are um, very comfortable with the idea that there is a God who is going to take care of us after we die. But the idea that that same God actually is our King and our Lord, who would demand our allegiance and call for our obedience in this life, that is something that we struggle with. For many of us, we live like Jesus takes care of the end of our lives, but we're in charge of the now. I live however I want to live now, and Jesus is around to take care of the mess at the end. And the question that Mark poses us is this, that if we trust Jesus for the life to come, will we follow him in the life that we're living now? That's the question. Jesus is Savior, and he is also our Lord. He is a king who doesn't offer us good advice, but he commands our allegiance. Because Jesus is both Lord and Savior, the real Jesus not only takes care of our future, but informs our present as well. 
So with all that, let me just say, I'm, my goal is to say nothing original at all in, um, <laughs> in this series. And um, I'm, I'm gonna, I don't normally do this, but I'm going to point you to a couple of resources if you want to study more in depth or follow along. This book, The King's Cross by Tim Keller, is, is, I'm pretty much just copying everything he says in this. If, so if you read it, just, you know, I'm not going to say that every week. That's just a disclaimer. Um, how God Became King, uh, yeah, How God Became King by N.T. Wright is a great book if you want to, if what I just said about Jesus, what is Jesus' goal for our lives now? Um, is he actually king? Uh, N.T. Wright does a great job of talking about that. And then um, Hans Bayer's book, A Theology of Mark, if you want a more in-depth kind of academic treatment of the book of Mark, this is great. Um, I'll leave these up here. If you're interested, you can come take a look later. There's also a book that I couldn't put my hands on this morning called uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham that is um, an incredibly uh, accessible but also very academically rigorous book about the reliability of the Gospels as witnesses to the life of Jesus. Okay, that's just the introduction. Don't worry, the rest will be appropriately shorter. <laughs> with that, would you stand with me as we give our attention to God's word in Mark chapter 1. Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes, one, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? God, would you speak to us through your word and spirit now as we attempt to take another look, to pay, to pay closer attention? Would you help us to see the real Jesus? We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated, please. So who is Jesus? The first thing that Mark tells us Mark doesn't tell us the Christmas story. He doesn't tell us about shepherds or wise men or the manger or the 
you know, uh, there's no room in the end. He doesn't. Mark immediately launches into the account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And the first thing that Mark wants us to see is that Jesus is God. The first thing he tells us right out of the gate in no uncertain terms is that Jesus is God. Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the Son of God um, might communicate to us, oh, he might be a little bit less than God. But in the words, or the paraf- to paraphrase the um, theologian Stephen Colbert, uh, the son of a duck is a duck. If he walks like a duck, if he talks like a duck, if he rose from the dead like a duck, then what is he? He's a duck that rises from the dead. Um, if you don't understand, Stephen Colbert is a satirist. Um, <laughs> Mark is telling us in no uncertain terms that Jesus is God, the Son of God is God. Every culture has, um, in some way, the idea that one day someone will finally come and everything will finally be right. Um, we see this in every culture, we see this in our stories like uh, Lord of the Rings. You know, finally, one day, everything will be made right. I know it's kind of a dated, but like, um, you remember the Matrix? The Neo, right? And the Matrix isn't cool anymore, but um, he's either, the, the idea that the one, there's the one, he will finally show up, he will make everything right. Harry Potter um, captures this. One day, someone will appear on the scene and everything will finally be made right through him. And Mark is saying um, that that one is Jesus. The word Christ or Messiah um, conveys the idea that this is God's anointed. This is the one that we have been waiting for. He's the one. He is God himself. And then Mark immediately expands on that statement about the divinity of Jesus by telling us about his baptism. And uh, as Jesus is baptized, did you notice the weird phrase? I never noticed that until this week. I, I saw that this week. Um, that it says, the heavens were torn open. I mean, that's like an apocalyptic image. Um, that's like end of the world. <laughs> what does that even, what does it look like? The heavens are torn open. But it, God is doing something different and unique as Jesus goes to be baptized. And then we see as Jesus is baptized, Uh, You hear the voice of God the Father saying, This is my son. I am so proud of him. I love him. And then we see the Holy Spirit uh, in the the image of a dove uh, descending on Jesus and, and hovering and kind of, the word is like fluttering over Jesus. Um. And so we see at the beginning of this story of redemption, it's, it's, it's echoing back to the first chapter of the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, we see uh, God, and we see God the Word speaking the world into existence, and we see the Spirit hovering or fluttering over the water uh, like a dove there. Um, it doesn't say like a dove, but hovering or fluttering. It's the same It's the same word. So there's these echoes of creation in the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, the work of redemption. And what they're both um, kind of calling out or pointing out to us is the reality that Christians for 2,000 years have affirmed, the, the reality that God is a trinity. And um, this is a unique, I, I, I mean, C.S. Lewis actually says that this is the thing that makes Christianity unique from any other world religion. 
the belief that God is both an, a, a me and a we. Um, it's, it's, it's mentally challenging, right, to understand what the Bible is actually saying when it teaches us the reality that God is a trinity. Um, the truth that there's only one God, there are not three gods, but that God exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, God is no more one than he is three. He is no more three than he is one. Um, and what this means is that there was never a time when God was alone. God, for all, all eternity, has existed in a relationship of love. God has existed for all eternity as a community. He was never bored. He was never lonely. And so what that means is that at the heart of all reality, the meaning of the world is a relationship of love. And that's why it feels to us like the meaning of the world when we fall in love, right? Um, God has always existed in a relationship of love. And at the heart of what God is doing in the world is a relationship of love. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. I think this is fascinating. He said, in Christianity, God is not a static thing. He's not even a person. Uh, sorry, God, in Christianity, God is not a static thing, not even a person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. You know, people have uh, used a lot of different metaphors to explain the reality of the Trinity, the egg or the existence of water as liquid, solid, and gas, and they all fail, but I think that that image of the Trinity as a dance is a beautiful and really helpful image to understand what Mark is telling us here. Um, it tells us what it means to know God because what happens in a dance is that there, there, are, there are multiple people orbiting around each other. And in a dance, there's one who takes the lead and there's another who, who steps back and gives deference. Um, there's one who is uh, asserting authority and there's one who is giving up a right or privilege. Um, to, to see the beauty of that image, you maybe have to think about the opposite of that, which is what happens every time my family of six gets into the car together, which is everybody trying to do everything at the same time <laughs> and everybody talking and everybody wanting to be heard and everybody getting bent out of shape because everybody's stepping on everyone's toes and nobody willing to be quiet and let somebody else say anything. Um, does that not strike? I mean, I guess you haven't experienced that. I guess it's just us. All right. Um, a dance is beautiful because we see multiple persons dancing, not in unity. That's why line dancing is terrible. <laughs> um, not in unity, but in coordination. Not everybody doing the same thing at the same time, but revolving around one another. No person saying, I must be at the center and everyone must revolve around me. But uh, one person taking the lead and the other giving deference, one person submitting while the other um, shines. That's the beauty of who God is. And Mark is telling us that the reason that God came into the world in the person of Jesus is to invite us into the dance. That's the reason, that's what Genesis 1 tells us, the reason that God created the world. 
Um, not because he was bored, not because he was lonely, but to expand the circle, to invite us into the dance, and then having rejected God at the beginning of creation, Jesus comes at the middle point of human history and extends the invitation again, invites us into the community of the Trinity, God's self. And what that means for us is this, the purpose of life is not to be happy, it is to know God. And I know that's a really simple statement, but like write it down or something, because <laughs> that's a really big deal. The purpose of life is not to be happy, it is to know God, because um, we believe, I believe, I talk to you all day, we, you, we all really believe that the meaning of life is to be happy. And I talk to people all the time who say, well, you know, I've just got to do what's best for me. And we tell ourselves, as long as I'm happy, that nothing else matters. And we've almost, like, turned selfishness into a virtue in our culture. No, 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 I'm not going to do the right thing. I have to do whatever is right for me. Um, that's, the, that's trying to make selfishness into a virtue. That's trying to say, no, everybody needs to revolve around me. I'm at the center of this dance. But the reality is that we are less happy as a human race. Like, there's all kinds of studies that back this up. We are less happy as a people than we have ever been, roughly corresponding to the same time frame in which it became socially acceptable to say, oh, the goal of my life is just to be happy. The purpose of life is not to be happy it's to know God. The secret of life is this. Happiness in life cannot be pursued directly. Happiness is a byproduct. Um, I think I've used this story before, but several years ago, um, my wife and I took our kids to Disneyland, which is apparently the happiest place on earth. It was not that for me. Um, <laughs> Taking four young children to Disneyland, first thing you do is like chop off your arm and leg financially just to get into the place. And then basically, Ashley and I were in this passive aggressive argument all day long. Um, and our moms were there, so we couldn't just like yell at each other and get it over with. And so every time we'd pass in the line, we'd like say something, you know, it was awful, it was awful. Like, there's so much hope riding on it, right? And it's costing a thousand dollars, and you got to get your money's worth. So everybody's exhausted, everybody's miserable. The older kids can't go on the same things as the younger kids, and vice versa. You're always sneaking off. It's terrible. It's terrible. You want me to keep talking about Disneyland? Um, <laughs> have you ever had the opposite of that, which is like a Saturday afternoon where you've done very little, like gone for a walk as a family, and you just at the end of the day, you look at, you're like, this is the best day ever, just by accident. Like, we didn't even do anything. Happiness in life is always a byproduct. When we think that the meaning of life is to be happy, we're putting ourselves at the center of the universe, and we're asking our jobs and our families and our reputations and our possessions and our whatever else to fulfill us and orbit around us. And what happens is they always feel like they're just slightly out of reach. 
And so we tell ourselves, just a little bit long, in six months work is gonna let up. In six months we'll get to where we need to be. In six months my kids will be out of diapers. In six months I'll, whatever it is, and it's always six months away. The secret of life is that happiness can never be pursued directly. It always comes as a byproduct. And that's why it makes all the sense in the world to say the purpose of life is not to be happy. It is to know God. And listen to me, not just like I know that there is a God out there. Like almost everybody believes that there is a God out there. Not to know that there is a God, but to know God is the meaning of life to circle around him, to know him as he leads you, to know him. Think about this. Does God defer to us? What is the point of Jesus' life and death and resurrection? It is God inviting us into the dance of knowing him and not just leading us, but God actually giving up his right, his privilege, his power, his authority, giving himself up for us. If you make happiness the goal of your life, it'll always be just out of reach. It's like running on a treadmill that gets turned up a click every year. But if you make knowing God the purpose of your life, you can actually enjoy the moments when life actually, like, briefly, like every once in a while, things actually start to click, right? And then also when life, you know, life never goes the way that we want for very long. We can still be content, we can still be satisfied, we can still be even happy when things seem to be going wrong. Jesus is the God who breaks into the world to invite you into the dance. That's the first thing John is telling us about the real, or Mark is telling us about the real Jesus. But the second thing that we see in this passage is this. We see that having invited us into the dance, the next thing that happens to Jesus is that he goes into battle. Uh, What happens immediately after Jesus' baptism is this, verses 12 and 13. It says, The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals. Jesus receives divine affirmation at his baptism and then is immediately driven out into the wilderness. And again, there's this kind of echo of the Old Testament where in the book of Exodus, God calls his people out of slavery and calls them as his own people and says, you are mine and I love you and leads them through the water of the Red Sea which the New Testament refers to as a baptism. And then they immediately go into the wilderness and spend 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. Um, what Mark is telling us is this, though ultimate, the ultimate reality is a dance, we experience life as a battle. We experience life as a battle. And yet what Mark wants us to know is that where God's people failed to follow God into, in the battle of the wilderness, where they basically failed at every moment of temptation, Jesus has succeeded on our behalf. Jesus has won the victory over Satan on our behalf. Um, it's interesting that Mark says that Jesus was with the wild animals. Um, You know, the book of Mark was written in the 50s or 60s AD. Uh, During that time, Nero was the emperor of Rome. And if you know anything about Nero, you know that Nero uh, was an especially cruel emperor. He hated Christians. 
he uh, is known to have lit Christians on fire and thrown them to the wild animals in the Colosseum. And Mark is telling these believers that he was writing this story, this account of the real Jesus too. That Jesus went into the battle, into the wilderness, and he was with the wild animals. As Christians are being torn apart, and of course temptation then arises to give up the faith, Jesus has already won the battle on their behalf and on our behalf. The point is this, okay? Don't be surprised when life is hard. Don't be surprised when life is hard. I mean, can we just be like really realistic for a minute? Life in this world sucks. Um, everybody has something you can think of right now to illustrate. Like, life doesn't isn't always terrible. We have great moments, but life is a battle. Some of you um, know. Some of us have a friend who went into work on Monday, like, what, 10 days ago? Or 13 days ago? Normal work day. His arm goes numb. The next morning, he finds out that he has a brain tumor, cancer in his head. Um, Life in this world sucks. Life is hard. And we've all got other examples. As I talk with people though there is this clear sense that life should be easier. Um, We all have this sort of vague hope that like something somewhere else is going to change and then I will have more time. My circumstances will change and then life won't be so busy. Uh, Something is going to snap into place and then I will have more time for my family. Then I will make time for community. Then I will make time in my life for God and church, etc. We think that something outside of us will change and then things will be easier. And let me just tell you, it's not going to happen. I know that that's not like the most encouraging thing, but it's, it's better than like thinking it's going to happen, right? And it never does. And that's why it feels like the treadmill always just gets turned up a little bit faster. Life is a battle. And the problem for many of us is that we have been led to believe that if we put our trust in Jesus, things will get easier. I think that is a uniquely American Christian view. Uh, The majority of Christians in the world do not believe that they're following Jesus to make their lives easier. Um, Many of us have been told, we believe that um, if you believe in Jesus, he'll give your life purpose and meaning in this life, and he'll take take you to heaven when you die. Um, Which means that, in a sense, we follow Jesus because of what we get out of it. And then when life doesn't go the way that we expect, we get angry because we think, well, why isn't God keeping up his end of the deal? But there's no place in the Bible um, that God promises to make your life easier. In fact, the exact opposite is true. 1 Peter 4.12 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But don't we like, why is this happening? It's in the Bible. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when life is hard. And Peter's talking about don't be surprised 
when you are, are when you face persecution, when people not just that like um, does, you know bad things happen to everybody. Peter's saying, don't be surprised that life gets harder for you because you're a Christian. When you put your trust in Jesus, things don't always get easier. If you follow Jesus because what you get out of it, you will constantly be disappointed. But when we see the beauty of the real Jesus, then we can say, I would follow Jesus even if I got no benefit from it. Like when we see Jesus as not just useful to us, but beautiful in who he is. And that's what Mark wants to show us. Uh, that this, this image, this picture of a real person who is not just our savior who's there to clean up our mess, but our Lord who commands our obedience. He is stunningly beautiful. And when we see his beauty, we can't help but follow him and enjoy him for his sake. Tim Keller says, um, he, <laughs> he said, I listened to Mozart in college because I took a music appreciation class. And so I listened to Mozart because I wanted to get an A and I needed to get an A so I could get a good job. So I listened to Mozart to make money. But now later in life, I will gladly pay a lot of money to listen to Mozart. Because once you've seen the beauty of it, you do it for its own sake, not because it's useful anymore. Now, don't get lost in like, I don't know that most of you don't probably care about Mozart, right? So don't, get, don't miss the point. It's an illustration. When we see the beauty of Jesus, we'd follow him even if there were no benefit to us at all. We've come to expect that Jesus came to make our lives better that he demands nothing from us in this life and that he's going to take us all to Disneyland after we die. <laughs> That's not why he came. The real Jesus came to invite us into the dance of knowing God. He invites us to follow him. He is a king. Kings have kingdoms and subjects. The gospel of Mark turns our expectation of Jesus upside down. And when we take a closer look at the real Jesus, we see that he is both Savior and Lord. He demands our allegiance. He calls us into the dance of knowing God as he really is. And he invites us into the adventure of following him into the battle of life. Let me just finish with this challenge. This is like a dare, okay? Like, can, I dare you to actually believe this is true. That really wasn't the best way to state that dare, but, but here's the thing. I think that at the end of the day, most of us are just bored. And we're living this life where we're just trying harder to get a little bit more. And we think that that, you know, six months down the road, we'll actually be content with what we have, even though it's never happened in the past. And then if we finally upgrade the kitchen or get the promotion or, or what, get that final vacation, that then we will be satisfied. And so we're like tired because we're on this treadmill that never slows down, always gets ratcheted up. And yet we're bored to death because a lot of us actually have those things and they still haven't satisfied us. And Jesus you know, we look at Jesus and we expect him to help us and he doesn't or he does and either way, we're tired and we're bored. So let me leave you with this challenge. Will you take another look at the real Jesus? 
We have come to look at the Jesus who actually is, the Jesus who demands our allegiance and, yes, died to forgive us of our sin. Will you come to look at the real Jesus with me? I dare you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, the words of Mark written um, to encourage your people uh, suffering in Rome 2,000 years ago and in every generation since. And Father, I pray that we would be inspired as we see that you haven't just come to make us happy or comfortable, but that you have come uh, to do so much more then we, we struggle to even put it into words. You are inviting us into uh, the life of community with the triune God himself. Would you help us to see how much more beautiful that is? Would you help us to see Jesus as he truly is, as he leads us, as he asks us to follow him, as he is torn apart on the cross not because of anything he did, but to uh, forgive us of our sin and heal the stain of our broken relationship with you. And having seen that, Father, would you help us to follow Jesus into the battle of life, not expecting life to be easy, but knowing that because you've taken care of our future, we can live a life of adventure now in the present as we follow Jesus. Father, none of us has really the courage to do any of that. And so we pray that your spirit would live in us and through us. That you would help us to see the real Jesus, we pray.